Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics. And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. Today we've got a topic very dear to my heart and we know to yours since you listened to the Think Biblically podcast. The title of the book is from Dr. William Mounts and it's called Why I Trust the Bible. And the subtitle is Answers to Real Questions and Doubts People Have About the Bible. It's an excellent book, and we're going to dive into some of the big questions and doubts you probably have. Dr. Mounts, thanks so much for coming on. It's good to be here. Let me just start by asking you some of your own training and experience that you bring to the study of the Bible's reliability. Well, I did my academic work at Aberdeen University uh, with uh, some of the people that teach with you guys at Talbot. And then I went and taught for 10 years at Azusa Pacific University, which is right down the street from Talbot. Uh, took a break, and then I went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Boston to run the Greek language program and do some teaching. And it was during that time that I got involved in Bible translation. And in terms of the background to the book, uh, it probably more of, more of uh, my experience in Bible translation has affected the book than anything else. I was the New Testament chair of the ESV for 10 years, and I've been on the Committee for Bible Translation that controls the NIV for about 11 years. And what's been interesting is when I'm out speaking uh, mostly on either Greek or Bible translation, when I open up the floor for questions, the questions were all about trusting the Bible, different issues relating to that. So it is really the topic of the day. And so it was a uh, I thought, you know, that'd be a good, it's a different kind of book for me to write. It's not a Greek textbook, but it was an important topic, one that I had a lot of experience answering. Bill, one of the things that uh, comes out kind of early on in the book is that uh, sort of contrary to popular culture, cultural opinion about the reliability of oral tradition and things that we just pass on by word of mouth, you are actually pretty confident in the oral tradition that existed around in the first century at the time of, the, of Jesus and the apostles as being a pretty reliable uh, way of transmitting information. What, what is it about the oral tradition in the first century that causes you to have such confidence in it when it's, it's, we're so skeptical about it today? I guess there's two answers to that question. The first one is not an answer that would satisfy the skeptics, but as that Jesus promised his disciples that the Spirit would remind them of everything he had ever taught them. So that's, for a Christian, that's kind of a starting point. But from a secular point of view, and this took some while to, to get my head around because I don't live in an oral culture. Uh, I write things down. That's how I remember them. I remember them by not remembering them, but writing them down. But in oral cultures, uh, stuff is done by memory. And I have a friend that is a church planner in oral cultures. And so I've had a lot of practical experience with that as well. And it's really amazing at how good our memories can be if we live in a culture that passes on the stories by word of mouth. And so part of it was just trying to get my head around what it is to be in an oral culture and to not rely on writing. I don't know how you guys do it in your classrooms, but uh, there were times when I was lecturing, I said, I'll put down your pens. Because I think sometimes in our culture, information goes uh, in the ear straight to the pencil and not through the memory banks. 
And I said, just put the pen down. I want you to really know this and understand this. So even in our cultures, we, we need to work on our memories. But the other thing, too, that uh, I did not know was how accurate the brain can be. You know, it was common for Greek children to memorize all 200,000 words, I think it is, of the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's common for the Jewish rabbis to have memorized every word of the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, so it's that's just part of trying to learn what an oral culture is all about. Bill, in apologetic circles in which I run and interact, I frequently hear that the Gospels are anonymous, but you disagree. There's been some really interesting research that's done recently by uh, Craig Evans and by Simon Gathergall that really addresses that issue. Uh, Craig writes in his latest book that of every manuscript that we have, the beginning of a gospel, there's the title that gives attribution to the author. And Simon's article is, is done doing the same basic thing. So while the name is not embedded in the text, uh, it is in the manuscripts from a very early on date. And that's a really important piece of information. The other point that Craig really emphasizes, and I think he's dead right to do it, is no one else in church history is said to have written the first gospel or the second or the third or the fourth. In other words, the testimony of the early church is unanimous that the first gospel, four, the four gospels were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you consider the explosive spread of Christianity to the far corners of the earth and that there's no contradictions they had to know very early on who wrote them because you wouldn't get people on opposite ends of the Roman Empire guessing that Matthew wrote the first gospel. So I think between the manuscript evidence and the fact that there's unanimity among the early writers about who wrote the gospels is that we can be really confident that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John actually did write the gospels. And what's important about that is that means the authors were in a place to know the truth. They had been with Jesus, or in Luke's case, he had the witness of Paul and his own research. And so we can trust what they said as being historically accurate. Bill, sometimes in uh, in circles that are critical of Christian faith, uh, people claim that the gospel writers were playing it fast and loose with history, and that at best they were just interested in the moral lessons that come out of the teaching of Jesus and, and the apostles. Um, how do you respond to the view that the gospel writers were not particularly interested in all those historical details, but more from the moral lessons? I think there's several ways to respond to that. First of all, it's in total defiance of Luke 1, 1 to 4, where Luke explicitly states that he's writing for the, to show the historical veracity of the truth. You don't have any indication in the gospels that they're making up the stories. Uh, they included the embarrassing statements. They got Peter, the, the head of the church, at least the, the Jewish church, Jesus calling him Satan, and they leave it in. Uh, you have early controversies in the church where if they hadn't been interested in historicity, they would have made up stuff. So you have to become a Jew and be circumcised in order to become a Christian. It have been really easy if they didn't care about historicity to say, oh, you know, Jesus said you don't have to be circumcised to be his follower. Um, in other words, there's these and many other telltale signs that the gospel writers were intending to be historically accurate. I think one of my favorite, though, is in Luke 1 and 2. The Greek is different. 
the Greek really feels like it's closer to Aramaic than it is to how Luke tends to write. And you look at those stories, and how did he find out about Mary's song and, and the angel coming to Zechariah and that stuff? And it certainly seems plausible to believe that he actually went to them and asked them. And his concern for historical veracity is so paramount that in his Greek, he's actually reflecting the Aramaic that Zechariah and Mary would have spoken. So there's all kinds of indications that they cared about history. You know, and this is right down your all's line, but of all the religions and the faith systems, Christianity has to be historically accurate. Uh, it's not just a bunch of ideas. It is first and foremost, first and last, about the person and the work and the teachings of Jesus Christ. And it really does matter that these events happen. So there, there's simply no reason to really think, I don't think, that these, these things are being made up. Bill, let me take this in a little different direction. Uh, once, once the books of the New Testament were completed— uh, once the writing was finished, and they and now the text of those was being transmitted and copied and spread, uh, you know the the early people who copied the New Testament probably were not trained scribes in the same way that some of the later ones were. But how how can we be confident that the copy of the scriptures that we have in our hands today is essentially the same things that the original writers wrote down? I think there's several ways to respond to that. And Bart Ehrman has really gone after this whole issue. And he's talked about how the early scribes were sloppy. Um, and they weren't sloppy. Uh, Craig and Craig Evans and Dan Wallace have done us a great service at looking at all of the early manuscripts. And they make a distinction between a literary hand and the, the actual scribes. The literary scribes were, in fact, it seems at times more interested in making something that looked pretty, not that it was accurate, but the scribes that did do the initial manuscripts weren't literary scribes, but they were giving every indication they wanted to be accurate. Dan Wallace has a strong argument that uh, some of those early scribes were probably accountant kind of people because of the abbreviations they used. In other words, they were people that were meticulously careful about details. And while they couldn't write beautiful script, they wrote what was clear. And you also have the fact that, you know, it's really unusual to find liberals and conservatives agreeing on anything. But for the most part, liberals and conservatives agree that text criticism has done its job and that 99% of the text is authentic. And what we don't know for sure uh, doesn't affect anything that we believe. Well, the only way for that to happen was for the scribes to have been very, very careful in their work. Bill, you cover a range of topics in your book, again, Why I Trust the Bible, from the canon, contradictions, textual criticism, which you just discussed— but one of the objections you and I both hear is that Paul and Jesus proclaimed a different message, a different gospel. Is that true? No. <laughs> and it's, it, those are fun conversations because you want to say, where are they different? Now, they were writing to different audiences. They were writing for different purposes. I mean, well, Jesus was speaking for different purposes. He was talking about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. 
And when you get to Paul, he's having to deal with issues in the church and issues with Judaizers and things like that. And they speak with different vocabulary. But, you know, some people think, oh, Jesus is kind and gentle and Paul is rough. Well, go read what Jesus thought of the Pharisees. Uh, you can find that he is just as rough as Paul is. And some people think that, oh, Paul wasn't loving, and yet he, the love of Christ and how it pervaded his life are key things in, in Paul's thinking. So, yeah, they, they sound different at first, but they're writing to different audiences and they're writing for different purposes. And I just don't know of any place where they contradict each other. I know, for example, what about the church? And so, People will say, well, Jesus never intended to create a church. And Paul obviously thinks that there's supposed to be a church. And so that'd be like an example of a contradiction. But Jesus gave a ton of ethical commands. And the question is, where did he think those ethical commands would be carried out? Well, they'd be carried out in his followers, which Paul calls the church, or we call the church. And so there, I just don't think there's any place where there's just flat out contradiction. They're different, but not contradictory. Let's talk about contradictions for a little bit, because you have two chapters in the book on this, mm -hmm. and you you take some of the most common ones I hear, but let's do two. One is kind of on the same line of Jesus and Paul teaching a different message, but this one is the claim of James and Paul teaching a different message about mm -hmm. faith. So Romans 4, Paul seems to say you're saved or justified by faith alone. James 2 seems to say you're justified not by faith, but by works. Why is that not a contradiction? A, a lot of the apparent contradictions, I always try to append the word apparent to the word contradictions, is the result of poor exegesis. And this is an example of that. The, the word justified has a range of meaning, as all words do. And justification, the word can refer to how you move into a just relationship with God. And the other side of the semantic range of the word is how do you live in a justified relationship with God? And Paul and James are just drawing from uh, two different edges of the same word. And, you know, there's questions about was James trying to deal with people that have misunderstood Paul? And so that's why he uses the same verse in Genesis and the same illustration of Abraham and the same word of justified I don't, I don't know the answer to that question, uh, but it certainly reads as not a correction of Paul, but as a correction of people who've misunderstood Paul. So I, there's other ways to handle that, but I, I like the argument from the semantic range of the word. One of the other uh, apparent contradictions you talk about is a common one that I've heard about the timing of the Last Supper between Matthew oh, 26 yeah. and John 19. Unpack that one for us, if you will. Yeah, that one's a little more complicated, and I, I took longer in the book to do it. I think the thing that's important is that all four Gospels agree that Jesus died on Friday night. There's no contradiction there because they wanted to break their legs to get the bodies down before uh, Shabbat started. So whatever you do with that comment about the meal, um, I think it's in John, is that they both have Jesus dying on the same day, which means that the Lord, the uh, communion, the Last Supper, had to have been on Thursday night. There are some arguments that can be made that there are different meals uh, being discussed uh, in terms of the Pharisees wanting to be able to, to partake in these meals. But I think the, the thing that's really important is that 
all four agreed that that meal was Thursday night. He had his kangaroo court on Friday morning, pilot Friday, uh, later on the morning, and the death on Friday afternoon. Another topic you go into in the book is what's called the canon, which books are included and which books are not included Mm -hmm. in uh, New Testament scriptures. What criteria were used to not select a book to be in the canon, but to recognize them, and why those criteria? Well, a lot of it has to do with authority, that the there seem to be three tests. These three tests are not laid out anywhere for us, but when you look at how the church talked about the books in the Bible, you can see that there were three things they were looking at. And the first and by far the most important was authorship, who wrote it. Was it by an apostle or, in Luke's case, the friend of an apostle? Because the church understood that Christ passed his authority on to the disciples and Paul, uh, to the apostles, and their writings carried their authority. So first and foremost, it was who wrote it. And you can see... Uh, like in the fictitious Third Corinthians that was written out of, quote, love for Paul. As soon as they found out that Paul didn't write it, they got rid of it. And there wasn't, I, I don't believe anything necessarily heretical, and it's been a while since I looked at it. But the, the point was that it wasn't by an apostle or a friend or an apostle. And so uh, it was kicked out of out of the church. And so that was the really the big uh, thing. But the second is, does it agree in doctrine and tone? And thirdly, was it used by the church universal? And when you look at the books that did struggle a bit to get into the canon, you can see that it's one of those three things that's at play. So talk a little bit about kind of what books were debated and which ones were established early. And and then if you could unpack one of the apologetic points that I'll often make, I'm curious what you think about this, is even if we remove the debated books— we still have 21 key books that clearly have the gospel of Jesus laid out unequivocally. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I think that's a very important thing. Michael Kruger's books on canon are extremely good, and he stresses that the church doesn't bestow canonicity. Uh, books were recognized instantly as being authoritative, and I, I have the number at 22, not 21, Uh, Revelation is kind of an odd book in that it was accepted as authoritative right away, and then a few centuries later it was questioned by part of the church. So if you add Revelation in, then you you have 22 books. And so you have a core of the canon that's accepted instantly, and that's the standard against which the other books are judged. Uh, John had some questions about it because it was used by the, or I should say misused by the early Gnostics. And so there was some question about whether it should be in the canon, but people knew John wrote it. And so that problem went away. Uh, Hebrews was debated because of authorship. They don't, don't know, and we still don't know who wrote it. We don't actually have a clue as to who wrote Hebrews. It is totally anonymous. James had a little trouble getting in the canon because of the passage you re- referenced earlier. Does, it doesn't sound like it agrees with Paul. The church had accepted Paul's writings as authoritative, so that made James a little questionable, but some good exegesis took care of that. Second Peter was questioned because the Greek is so different from First Peter. And my personal opinion is that Peter had a, an amanuensis to fix the Greek up in First Peter, and my guess is he actually wrote Second Peter. Jude had trouble getting into the canon because so much of it is in 
Second Peter, but also because it references non-biblical books, and that is a problem for some. And Second and Third John had trouble getting in the canon because they were so small, you could see how they weren't spread around the ancient world, uh, and hence the, the cat, they didn't pass initially the Catholicity test, the, the universal use by the church as a whole. So those are the, those are the books that that had some trouble being recognized. But again, it's it's really important to note, you know, contra Bart Ehrman and, and some of his uh, the people that go the direction he does, is that you have the instant acceptance of twenty two books as being absolutely authoritative and binding on the church, as expressions of the apostles who carried the authority of Christ. And so this idea of you know well there's different doctrines going around and different theologies going around and what we have are the ones that won the debate. I just don't think there's any foothold in reality in that argument. You mentioned working on the ESV translation. I had a chance to interview uh, Wayne Grudem not long ago, and he shared Mm -hmm. some insights of working on that as well. Give our listeners kind of some insight of what it's like to be on a committee deciding the English words that people will read and consider the Word of God. What's that process like, and why should we have confidence in it? Well, first of all, you have confidence because they're all done by committees. Uh, You're not going to get one person exerting um, too much of his or her own control. Uh, There there were 12 people on the ESV. There's 15 on the CBT that controls the NIV. I know uh, I talked to Tom Schreiner about the CSB revision, and there was a committee going together for that as well. So you have safety in numbers. And as you look at the the names of the translators, you realize they're really qualified people. And so that's part of it. The What it's like, it's a giant Bible study. And it's it's just a lot of fun. When we're focusing on the Old Testament, I love to sit next to Bruce Walkie, because that way, if I don't understand something, I can poke him and say, what are they talking about? Oh, okay, I, okay, I get it. Uh, or if we're in Gospels, I'll sit next to Blomberg or to Gathergall. And it's just, it is a giant Bible study, and it's it's just a lot of fun. But again, you have really world-class scholars that are debating, have studied, have prepped before we come together into these different meetings. And it's just, it's a very, very good process. Translations, I found, and Wayne was really big on this, is that translations can't be too uh, inventive. Hmm. And, you know, just because a commentary came out and they said, you know, we think that we got this word wrong and it should be translated this way that committees are a little bit conservative in terms of going down new trends and they, they don't want to you know stick their neck out too far so it's a it's a somewhat of a conservative process on the ESV i think it was the majority vote in order to change the RSV on the NIV now that has to be about a two-thirds vote to change the existing NIV text so the whole process is set up to have a lot of people, a lot of qualified people who have done their homework and then are very cautious at making changes. That's awesome. That does engender a lot of trust in just the care and the yeah. accountability and the the process itself. So thanks for your insight on that. Now, I do wonder, I, I was just told from a, a leading publisher that one of the top, if not the top, English Bible still sold in the U.S. is the King James Version. And it's a beautiful, wonderful translation, but 
many who read the King James will take what's called a King James-only approach. Mm -hmm. What's your response to that position? It's best not to get too involved in that debate (laughs) 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 because it can become very emotional. Hmm. And there are actually people that will question my salvation because I don't use the King James. Wow. And that's just, you know, that's just completely wrong. But it, it happens all the time. It's a it's a very emotional topic for some people. And what I often ask them is that, do you feel this strongly about your own sanctification? I mean, are, are, do you really pursue loving Jesus more and more with the same vehemence that you pursue the King James? So that's, if I'm in a discussion with them, that's that. The, the, yeah, the King James was a work of art. And the fact of the matter is normal people today can't understand it. Certainly people who uh, have not been raised in the church can understand it. And there's also, it's a different Greek textual base than all modern translations use. And so there's the problem with that. You know, Jesus says when, when the apostles can't exercise the demon, the best Greek texts say this demon, this kind can't come on except by prayer. And King James has prayer and fasting because the Greek texts they use have and fasting. And so you have these textual issues that uh, can cause a problem. So that'd be one reason not to use it. But, you know, one of the uh, NIV translators has a famous line he said over and over again, is that all translations will lead you to the cross. Hmm. No major translation will lead you to heresy. Uh, So, you know, all these Bible translators are different, but they're good. But you have to be able to understand it. And that's how the NIV actually gets started. There was a, a New York businessman who was sharing his faith and read the King James to someone who hadn't been raised in a church. And the guy just started laughing. He goes, I, what does that mean? I don't understand that at all. And that was the genesis of the NIV. This, this man's desire to have a Bible that could actually be understood by people who weren't raised in the church. So my main objection to reading the King James would be, do you understand it? Mm. And if you're going to share your faith, will the uh, people you're sharing your faith with also understand it? Final question for you. Again, for those listening, we've been talking about the book, Why I Trust the Bible, Dr. William Mounts. It's just a wonderful apologetics book. But I'm curious, you've been teaching Greek, you've been studying the Bible, You've been defending the Bible for many, many years. How have you seen the positive case for trusting the Bible changed over your career? Well, I would I would say that actually because of the attacks of uh, men like Professor Ehrman and because of the attacks on social media and, and uh, celebrities who don't know what they're talking about deciding to jump into it and the whole shift in Western culture that we know we used to inherently trust the Bible, and now culture is saying you can't trust the Bible. The, the actual, the, the momentum is very much going the other direction. And a lot of people who even were raised in Christian homes are finding, or they're, they're saying to their folks, I, I just don't believe this stuff anymore. I just can't trust it. That was one of the challenges in writing the book was that I wrote it for both 18-year-olds and their parents, because that's what's happening. They're going to university, they're getting exposed to a lot of different things, and their parents are sick in their, you know, their, their children walking away from their faith. So it's really going the other direction. Now, the, the positive thing is that some really, really good scholars have stepped up and have started answering 
questions. You know, uh, Daryl Bach on historical Jesus, Craig Blomberg on contradictions, Michael Kruger on Canon, Dan Wallace and on text criticism. I mean, these are world, world class scholars who are really focusing on some of the issues of the day. So I am really hoping that uh, as these men have their voices heard, that we'll be able to stem the tide uh, at least somewhat. Well, I really appreciate you weighing in with your book. I think it's excellent. I, I think your perspective is really helpful. When I was able to help my father update his book, Evidence It Demands a Verdict, which he first wrote in the early 70s, we had a, oh, yes. we had a lot of conversations about how archaeology has changed and textual transmission and the case for the resurrection. And his perspective is just it was enough then to convince people who are open-minded, but even more powerful and significant today. So the culture may be shifting in its perspective, but in your book, you make a really good case that we have good reason to trust the Bible. Dr. Yeah, William, if, oh, go ahead. If I could add something here, you, you mentioned your dad. I still remember listening to him lecture in 1972. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it was, it was very helpful uh, mm. and encouraging to me. And I got, actually got to spend some time with him asking him some questions. Oh, wow. But, you know, I don't get much into this. There's one paragraph on archaeology in the book, which you mentioned. So I just ran out of, I was supposed to write 80,000 words, and so I had to stop somewhere. <laughs> but archaeology would be another very positive statement. The archaeology uh, has never disproven the Bible, ever. Mm. And every place that archaeology has been able to overlap with the biblical narrative it's proven that the Bible is true. Now, there's a lot more that we need archaeologists to find to help us. But but your dad, in Evidence That Demands a Verdict and uh, in subsequent talks, has done a really good job of saying, you know, my favorite example is William Ramsey, an, an atheist yeah. set out to prove that Luke was a terrible historian and found out that Luke was actually, what well, he says, the best historian in the ancient world, and he became a Christian. Uh, the Bible is still used today by some Jewish archaeologists to help locate digs and things like that. So our archaeology is, a, is another very big positive thing that is encouraging people to trust their Bible. Well, you're going to have to write Why I Trust the Bible Part 2 and talk about that <laughs> and beyond. Uh, Dr. William Mounds, thanks for writing a great book, Why I Trust the Bible, and we really appreciate you coming on Think Biblically. It's good to be here. Thanks. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including our Masters in Christian Apologetics, where I personally teach now fully online. Search biola.edu slash Talbot to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please consider giving us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.